for being here today. Um, yeah. I'm really excited about the conversation that we're going to have. Uh, I'd like to start off by asking you to tell us a little bit about the work that you do with the Amistad Law Center. Sure, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I am a, a paralegal and an organizer with Amistad Law Project. Uh, we're a West Philly-based public interest law, law firm that uh, works with uh, people incarcerated in PA prisons primarily. Um, so a bit of the work that I do is I assist um, our two amazing lawyers, Chris and Nikki, uh, with, with cases, sometimes with mitigation work for juvenile lifers or with interviewing folks or doing doc review. As well, we have an organizing co component to our work because, you know, we believe that, you know, the legal system has very real limits. So we're involved in a lot of organizing and policy advocacy work. We've done a lot of work around um, the DA's office in Philly um, and, you know, trying to get better policies um, that will uh, hopefully uh, work to undermine mass incarceration. Uh, as well, we're involved with a movement of lifers and lifers' families here in, in Pennsylvania um, that are trying mm -hmm. to, um, you know, fight for sentencing reform and fight to abolish uh, uh, what people on the inside have been calling death by incarceration, you know, mandatory life without parole sentencing. So that's, mm -hmm. you know, a lot mm -hmm. of the work that I do on a day-to-day -day basis is really a mix um, of, you know, some, some here in the, the legal side of things. And then some, you know, other work, um, you know, helping to, you know, bring families together um, to speak up for themselves and, you know, just really to really, uh, you know, end, end this, this uh, practice that we, these practices that we have as a society of trying to, um, you know, deal with social problems by locking them up. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, um... Can you talk a little bit more about your experience with uh, the Lifers uh, program and uh, share yeah, any, you know, success stories? I mean, I know, you know, from following you yeah. on Facebook, um, you know, you, you've posted uh, some wonderful things there, uh, in particular the yeah. uh, story that you highlighted uh, a few days ago about Ghani Songster. And, um, oh, yeah. you know, could you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Sure. So... Um, you know, for a number of years now, there's, you know, been this growing movement um, that was really started by, um, you know, politically conscious lifers that were, you know, incarcerated in PA prisons. You know, so they did some initial organizing work back in the day to help bring, you know, some, some groups together out here of their, of their family members um, and, and supporters. And that's really grown in some amazing and beautiful ways here in Pennsylvania. You know, one of the things, you know, there's been sort of two things that I think have, that I really highlight about this story about lifers getting organized. One was the creation mm -hmm. a number of years back of the Coalition to Abolish Death by Incarceration, which was the effort of, mm -hmm. a, of a number of different groups, including Right to Redemption, which is a group of lifers uh, that are incarcerated now at, at SCI Phoenix. Uh, they were previously incarcerated at SCI Greaterford, which is now closed. But Ghani was mm -hmm. a part of that group. He was, he's, he was a founding member of Right to Redemption. And that's how many oh, wow. of us, you know, met Ghani. Uh, he was somebody mm -hmm. that we were working with on the inside. Um, and because of a series of rulings, um, which I'm sure you're, you and probably a number of your listeners are aware of, um, juvenile life without parole was ruled to be cruel and unusual, to be unconstitutional. Um, and... Um, Ghani was able to be resentenced and come home. And so one, one thing that was actually very interesting with Ghani's case is that in Philly, um, he was to be one of the, the first contested resentencings. In other words, there, there had been a number of people that had been resentenced, but they had had enough years in and were offered basically deals that made them immediately parole eligible. Well, Ghani, mm -hmm. the DA was trying to keep him in another five years. Um, so he was contesting wow. that and fighting to come home right away. So the, the picture that I posted, um, you know, which you had referenced was a picture of myself and Ghani in a church. And that church is Art mm -hmm. Street United Methodist. A, a, a little over a year ago, we held this event called the Community Resentencing. And Ghani kind of, you know, we, Ghani and a bunch of us had talked and, you know, we said, you know, we really want to do something to mobilize around your court date. 
maybe we could have like a little vigil the night before or something like that. What do you think? And he kind of turned it into this whole next level thing where he's like, actually, instead of a vigil, since I'm gonna be resentenced by the court the next day, why don't we have the community resentence me? And wow. why don't we don't just not make it about me, but we make it about all juvenile lifers and a space for the community to imagine, you know, what what justice would look like and what someone like myself who, you know, has done harm should be resentenced to, you know. And yeah. so people came together in that space, including some juvenile lifers who had already been able to be resentenced and come home. And those juvenile lifers led small groups in deliberation about what would be appropriate sentence for someone like Ghani, who had already spent 30 years in to receive. So people came up with things like he should mentor the youth. He should mm -hmm. make peace with victims' families. He should support other people that are coming home from prison and need, you know, they need, need someone to lean on. You know, he should mm -hmm. organize against mass incarceration. And my very favorite thing that the community sentenced him to was freedom. <laughs> so, wow. um, which is, I think, the bare minimum of what, you know, any person deserves after having to spend 30 years separating from society and, you know, behind steel, razor wire and concrete. So, you know, we did this resentencing, this community resentencing. It, you know, reporters covered it. It was a very interesting thing. You don't see this every day. You know, at the end of that event, we we wrote down what we had resentenced Ghani to on a, a giant community resentencing, resentencing order that was made to look like a court order, you know. And we went and wow. stood in front of the court where he was going to be resentenced. You know, of course, mm -hmm. the next day when he was resentenced by the court, we mobilized people to, you know, uh, support him. Uh, the, you know, the courtroom was packed. Uh, and the judge, you know, and the beautiful thing, too, is that morning on the top fold of the newspaper was coverage of the community resentencing. Um, but anyways, you know, you know, he, he, he received the judge did not agree with the D.A., you know, the judge, the judge basically was like, you know, I don't know who would be served by him being incarcerated any longer. And he made him more yeah. or less immediately parole eligible. That's amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's fantastic. And, you know, he's, he's come home, he's hit the ground running. It's just very, very, very beautiful. Um, you know, he. No, I've been, I've um, been following his, you know, I've been following his post on, uh, on Facebook and, you know, yeah. I'm absolutely enthralled. I mean, I, I'm in awe uh, of yeah. the amount of work that he's been able to do in a year. Um, yeah. You know, everything. I mean, all of the – he's been doing a lot of healing work uh, as well. Yeah. So I've seen, you know, his posts around, you know, yoga and combining yoga with justice and, you know, other things that really resonate with me as someone who's, you know, very yeah. much interested yeah. in in the health and well-being um, of you know, activists in this space, um, and pretty yeah. much everybody else. So, um, yeah. yeah, but I, I'd like to pivot here, um, for a moment. And there were a couple of other posts that you shared on Facebook, and I'm going to read the first one. Uh -huh. It was from uh, July 20th, and it's it's brief. It's it's okay. not very long, but you said, "quote Prison is where they give you a used, unclean jumpsuit and then have a drug." Uh, have a drug dog sniff you and throw you in solitary because the jumpsuit smells like drugs. Prison is where they steal your wedding band out of your property when you're being moved or throw your father's obituary in the trash. Prison is where you are upset and awake at 3 a.m. looking through family photographs. They take you and throw you in a spike observation cell. Prison is where artificial scarcity is engineered into the environment so people fight over scraps. Not enough showers, mm -hmm. not enough phones. Prison is where all these things happened last week. PA's new prison, in fact, SDI Phoenix, a $400 million experiment in making people's lives utterly miserable. A $400 million middle finger to public school children, people struggling for access to quality health care, and working class communities across the state, end quote. And that just... Yeah. Like, you yeah. have no idea. I, I read that post, and I was like, oh, that's what made me reach out to you. Um, oh, and no. I, you okay. know, <laughs> I was deep in yeah, my feelings I mean, when I wrote that. I was deep in my feelings, you know. 
I, you know, and, and definitely, I mean, it, it just, it really resonated and that's yeah. really what I want you to talk a little bit about, you know, not just yeah. the new prison, but also, you know, why were you, you and your feelings about this and why did you share that? Um, so, so, so in that post, I referenced a number of different things that had happened to people and those, those, every sentence is about a specific person that I'm friends with who's now at Phoenix that went through the the transition from SCI Greaterford, which is nearly 100 years old, to this brand new high-tech prison that they built right next door, SCI Phoenix. Um, that, that prison was something that a lot of us spent a lot of time trying to fight here in Pennsylvania. Um, the, you know, the long and short of it is that we we didn't mount our campaign to stop it from being built soon enough, um, but we did mm-hmm. mount a very, very fierce campaign that involved all sorts of things. It involved people debating the head of the DOC on the radio. It involved people doing civil disobedience at the construction site where the prison was being built. It involved rallies in Philadelphia, marches from Philadelphia to the Capitol. Literally, a group of people marched together for wow. 12 days to draw attention um, to the fact that the state of Pennsylvania was was building, it's the second most expensive construction project in PA state history. And, wow. um, you know, this is stealing, you know, it's literally taking money out of the mouths of, you know, when they're cutting everything else, you know, and you see mm-hmm. them building, you know, this new high-tech prison just to lock people up, make them miserable, you know what their priorities are. You know, the priorities aren't mm-hmm. helping poor people. They're not um, doing anything to empower communities or to make sure that people have access to free quality public education. Their priorities mm-hmm. are to punish and control communities um, and to do that through force with the police and the prison system. Um, and none of this in, in, in my mind makes us any safer. And, and so mm-hmm. that's a little background on Phoenix and how, you know, the people really fought Phoenix, but it was still built. And we've been waiting a long time. You know, it's been, it was a, a huge disastrous project. Um, they, you know, wasted a bunch of money on there, a bunch of, you know, kind of mishaps in the actual construction of it. But it's been sitting there for, you know, a number of months ready to bury people, you know. And, um you know, we were just waiting for people to get moved. And, you know, that happened mm-hmm. um, just just this past month. And what that looked like was that, you know, all of a sudden there was kind of like, they had COs that are part of a thing called the CERT team, uh, which is, you know, basically mm-hmm. a team that specialized in, you know, putting down prison rebellions or um, dealing with, you know, you know, kind of, um, you know, kind of extraordinary situations. The CERT team, they, from CEOs from CERT teams in prisons throughout the state descended upon Greaterford. And mm-hmm. um, the entire prison is locked down. Uh, people were in their cells for days receiving bag lunches. Uh, then eventually wow. somebody from the CERT team would come up and tell you, all right, it's time to move. Um, and you would leave your cell with a cart of your personal possessions. Couldn't have anything on you, including your wedding band. Um, because they were doing a very rigorous screening for contraband as they shipped people over to Phoenix. So what that looked like is people would take their property, they would be escorted outside, and then they were put in a situation where they had to, you know, um, you know, sit sit on a chair, have a drug dog sniff them, then they would get strip searched, you know, and then they would get shackled and put on a bus um, to go literally, you know, just a few minutes down the street next door to SCI. So mm-hmm. in that process, all of these really horrible, harmful things occurred. You know, there was the friend that I mentioned who um, is absolutely not someone who ever messes around with drugs and has not really been someone who's messed around with drugs in their adult life. And, you know, they were forced to change into a different pair of browns. He was like a day earlier and they were used browns. And his dog sniffs them and, you know, alerts on it, whether it was a false alert, whether the officer prompted the dog to alert or there was actually a Yeah. Yeah, nothing to do with our friend, but 
you know, in another situation, if this wasn't happening during this crazy move, he probably never would have spent really any time in solitary. It would have been resolved, um, you know, as soon as he, you know, because basically there was no contraband. There was no real issue. And, yeah, you know, but he spent, you know, almost two weeks in solitary um, because of that incident. Um, you know, it was pretty, pretty brutal. It's also his own court transfer. So it's not, it's not as, is uh the prison that he's you know that he's been at for for a while and he's got a very serious court case coming up so it was really really scary for him to to risk the possibility of getting a misconduct when his record you know needs to be clean he wants the judge to see hey i'm not a bad guy and here these people were playing with his life you know people's wedding rings two i know at least two people's wedding rings that have gone missing one is a friend the other is somebody who I'm, I'm connected with a woman on Facebook and I don't really know her all that well in real life, but she, she contacted me and she said, Hey, my husband's wedding ring is missing. And then this, you know, friend of mine on the inside, his, his wife actually lives upstate. So when he was like, my wedding band is missing. I was like, is this the same person? Like, you know, and I, and it wasn't, it was two, two separate people that, wow. that lost yeah. their, their wedding band, yeah. you know, the people's so, property was never messed got with. Them back. They they have not gotten them back. People's property was was you know people had family photographs that had obscenities written on them. They had you know you know situations where you know like you know peanut butter was smeared on everything. Um, you know just a, a bunch of disrespect. Hmm. Now keep in mind that the, the officers yeah. that are doing this, the CEOs that are doing this, yeah. They, exactly. They're from other prisons. They're from other prisons, so they don't. They don't even really. The 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 whole idea of like any ramifications or the kind of environment they're creating at this prison. They're like, you know, they don't have to deal with that. You know, they were just they were just around for yeah. the weekend, you know, messing with people. Hmm. But you know, and yeah. then you know the person, you know, you know somebody's, you know, obituary. The death of father's obituary is thrown out. Family photographs are thrown out. And then they're upset in their cell, you know, in, and they're looking at stuff, but they're not doing anything wrong. You know, they're not, they're not like, yeah. you know, they're wiling just, out or anything. Living. They're just, they're just living, living, existing. They're just living. And then a CEO throws them in a psych observation cell. So like, you know, all this stuff, all this stuff happened, you know, the line about scarcity being engineered in the environment was, you know, one person who Amistad works with, you know, and this is more than one person has told us this, but the, right that day when I wrote that post had contacted me and was talking about basically the situations with the phones on their, on their pod was just like, you know, and the, the number of showers is there's not enough showers, there's not enough phones. So it's creating tensions with all the prisoners, right? Absolutely. You know, because Absolutely. They, they, they all need to yeah, shower. They-, they all need to be able to call home, you know? And they're given, and they're, if it's anything like, you know, Vaughn in Delaware, where my sons are, it's, you yeah. know, they yeah. give them a limited amount of time for a dozen people or more to take showers, to have rec, to make yeah. their phone calls. And right. they have to figure out, you know, they have to negotiate amongst themselves, you know, what the order is going to be and how long people are going to be yeah. in the shower or on the phone and things like that. So it's, you know, like you said, they are engineering these these things uh, or manufacturing, yeah. you know, these tensions where it's really unnecessary. And, you know, and then people scratch their heads wondering why, you know, things happen. I mean, <laughs> um, and, you yeah, gotta, wonder you why re- second, you know, rebellions uh, happen, you know, and, you know, and here's the thing that, and oh, I'm sorry, I know, <clears throat> like, I, like, but just before we move off this, you know, the one thing that I, I should really mention about Phoenix that is really, I think, the most, well, I mean, it's, it's one of the most upsetting things about it to me is that Greaterford was an older style prison. And so all the mm-hmm. blocks were off a common hallway. And that common hallway, yeah. if you would ever go to like a special event at Greaterford in the auditorium or the chapel, you'd see the, the hallway was like, if you got a pass to leave your block, you walk through the hallway, you might even talk to people in the hall you know, information flowed pretty freely between the blocks. And people had created social organizations, religious organizations that were based on the structure that while they're all incarcerated and 
incarcerated on different prison blocks, they they could interact pretty pretty freely, you know, at at Greaterford. Mm-hmm. And and Greaterford was a place that was known to have, you know, among PA prisoners, you know, if you talk to people up in the mountains, there was always a, a bit of like you know, Greaterford had more programs at it, more outside groups going in, like universities, you know, like yoga programs, like all this stuff, mm-hmm. mostly because of its proximity to Philly, um, but also yeah. because it had this particular institutional history, um, like it was, a, it was an older prison that was close to Philly. So, you know, the, the mm-hmm. thing about Phoenix that is brutal, um, and I think all a lot of us, who, who work with lifers organizations at Phoenix or watching closely is that Phoenix is essentially two prisons. It's an east side mm-hmm. and a west side. And everybody's incarcerated in pods, which are physically separated. So there isn't a common hallway and blocks that, that the blocks go off of. Um, so people mm-hmm. are, people are in the same prison, but it's very, it's very hard for them to see people that they are maybe were friends with for decades or they worked in they work in lifers groups together, or they, you know, are part of the same religious group. You know, people are only gonna see each other when they're at the chapel. When yeah when the prison right now is, is in kind of this weird like quasi state of emergency. So the lifers groups can't meet. But maybe they'll get to all see each other when the lifers groups get to meet. But everybody's much more controlled. It's much more controlled yeah. and regimented. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's basically they, you know, it's like a lot of these prisons that are up in the mountains, but it is, you know, mm-hmm. it is in Montgomery County. It, you know, it is, you know, the, the, you know, prison that's now an hour away from Philly is one of these like more highly regimented spots. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was the, um, the second post that caught my attention uh, and that's the more recent post and I'll just read oh, it okay, yeah. again. It's, it's also a, a really brief post, um, and it touches on the things that, that you just said, but I think it's, it's worth sharing with, with our audience as well. You said, quote, it may sound weird, but the thing that's so upsetting about the new prison is that it's like people who were at Greaterford are getting incarcerated all over again. Greaterford was no walk in the park, but Phoenix is much more constrictive. At Phoenix, people are separated into pods that are completely isolated from each other. At Greaterford, all the blocks were off a common hallway, and it was easy for people to send messages across to other blocks. Really feeling for my friends there who have, who are having a hard time finding out where all their friends and comrades are in prison. Really hoping the lifers groups can start meeting again soon so people can at least check in on each other. And, yeah. you know, and that's the thing that I think, um, a lot of people don't get about what's happening in prisons. Like they have this perception about who goes to prison and, you know, they're watching these horrible TV shows um, where they think, you know, people are just getting, you know, or or, like they're glorifying violence and they're highlighting that as the only thing that's happening in in prison. And, you know, I don't want to minimize in any way the fact that, you know, violence does happen in prisons, and it does, and, um, but (laughs) the fact is also that people are building networks of support um, and mutual aid, if you will, between themselves, um, because, you know, that's how they're surviving this brutal, you know, system, and, you know, that last line there where you just said, you know, I'm really hoping the lifers groups can start meeting again soon so people can at least check in on each other. That, you know, that just yep. seems like such a simple and important thing to happen. And the new design and, you know, I think about the architecture and the dehumanizing architecture of prisons right. a lot, right? Because, it, you know, you did a quick comparison between the old prison at Greaterford and the new one at Phoenix um, and talked about the differences in, you know, just the hallway, not having mm-hmm. a common hallway and having these pods is a way to further undermine the, um, 
the connections that people might make with each other. Now, of course, you know, from the, you know, prison standpoint and the unions, uh, COs unions and what have you, they'll say it's for safety that, you know, they can't have prisoners, you know, congregating or meeting or, you know, in their minds that everybody's plotting against them. Um, Right. And what people are doing is basically coming together so that they can support each other through, you know, everything in life that is happening that they can't be a part of out here, you know? And I, I just want you to talk about that a little bit because that, that post really, um, like the other one, mm-hmm. really resonated with me. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I would start with, with saying that it, it's not the building, it's certainly not the building or the prison. That, that keeps anybody safe, right? The, the, the prisons themselves are, they're, they're sites of violence, not only of the state, right? Um, you know, mm-hmm. doing violence to people, um, you know, kidnapping them and, you know, not providing them with proper health care, um, you know, putting them in long-term solitary confinement, all sorts of horrible abuses happen in prisons. Mm-hmm. And the building has certainly never kept anybody safe. But I would go even further to say that, you know, you know, yeah, let's be real. You know, prisons are, you know, they're they're the site of a lot of, you know, um, antisocial violence. They're a very hyper-masculine environment, uh, for the men's prisons at least. And I think that, you know, what really keeps people safe in there is the societies that they create within there to take care of each other that you're referencing. You know, um, mm-hmm. people create community, they create bonds with folks, they look out for each other, and, you know, they also look out for the CEOs. You know, there's there's a huge mm-hmm. dynamic of, of that as well, if you'll, you know, um, or, or staff, you know, I think there was the, there was just a, I think it was a psychologist at Vaughn that recently was in the news about the uprising that happened there, and she was this Christian woman, mm-hmm. and it, she she recounted how prisoners you know, made sure to take care, not only to make sure that she was not, like, no violence was done to her, but also, like, try yeah. to comfort her by, like, singing Christian songs that she, she yeah. knew. And, and, you know, so I think, you know, really, um, you know, as much as there's violence in prison, there's a whole ton of humanity. Um, as one mom of a lot that I work with, I work with, like, very closely, um, and who's, like, my, like, super tight bud, Miss Didi, Ms. Didi will often say in meetings with politicians or with other folks, it's like they'll try to tell you that they're all animals in there. But, you know, you know, mm-hmm. for real, there's there's more there's more violence and there there's more crazy stuff that happens out here on the streets often than what what happens. Absolutely. In the so, Absolutely. you know, I, I, yeah, just, I mean, my, my I just think tell me that I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Um, so please, please tell me. What do your sons say about Bowen? No, I was just. Yeah, I was just going to respond to that. I mean, you know, my sons say that all the time, uh, you know, in terms of as, as much as there's really horrible shit that happens um, at these prisons, uh, at Vaughn, at Phoenix, and pretty much everywhere else mm-hmm. in the country, um, you know, we do take the prison. The, the prison itself is violent, right? <laughs> it's like that, yeah. that we're not debating that at all. But, um, you know, there's also a tremendous sense of, you know, when my son pointed out, you know, a few years ago that he pretty much knows everybody that's at the prison, right? Um, right, right. And that's, that's basically to say that, you know, the entire community, uh, people that he went to school with, went to high school with, um, you know, people that he knew from the neighborhood are all incarcerated, right? And yep. that, yep. I mean, it's it just, not only is that heartbreaking and, you know, sort of devastating um, anecdote about what is happening in communities across this country, um, but right. also to the fact, as you pointed out, that there's a tremendous amount of humanity because, you know, um, for example, you know, a young man uh, lost his mother um, a while yeah. back. And, you know, you're, you have to process all of those feelings around death in prison. Right. You need help. Right. You need help and you need support Absolutely. from people. And, you know, like now he has no one that is 
providing support for him from the outside. There's no one that, yeah. you know, puts money on his books or, you know, writes to him or Horrible. comes to visit and things like that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, it just, it, it's awful. It's awful. And when, you Absolutely. know, they move people around as a way to disrupt these support networks so that they can use that as a pretext, you know, when people lash out, they can use that as a pretext to crack down on them and to say, well, look, it's them. They're behaving this way. And, I mean, honestly, it's just, it, it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking, frustrating, and it pisses me the fuck off. <laughs> oh, it's, <laughs> it's unconscionable. Real about it. It's, it's, it's unconscionable. And, you know, I think there's, like, there's, there's a number of, of things to point out here. One is, you know, for instance, at Phoenix right now, the lifers groups cannot meet. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of other informal associations because of the sort of quasi state of emergency that they're in with the jail having just opened that, that people aren't getting to meet. And this creates an environment that's, that's much less safe for everybody, right? Absolutely. It is these long-term Absolutely. social bonds flowing throughout the prison that help to sort of anchor and give meaning to people's lives. They, it creates a sense of hope when in many situations, Absolutely. you know, it's, it's a structure that breeds hopelessness, you know. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, there's one point to me that's very political, right, about all of this, which is that, you know, prisoners, you know, when they can meet and organize, their power is really in mobilizing other people in society, right, because they're very, mm -hmm. you know, they're in this state of, incarcerated on freedom, you know, and, and, yep. you know, this, this kind of, you know, new structure that they have at the prison and them currently not being able to meet, uh, it, you know, it, it really is a, a way of limiting people from mobilizing their political power on the outside. Um, it's a, you mm -hmm. know, because they have to get organized in there to come up with plans to holler at mom, to holler at their uncle, to holler at whoever It'd be like, we need, we need you guys to get, you know, Julie representatives up here to check out the conditions or, you know, we need, we need you guys to do a petition to end life without parole. We need you guys to, you know, it's like that organizing in there is the engine of everything we do on the outside in the movement here in Philly. Absolutely. You know, and it doesn't Absolutely. just happen at Phoenix. This happens at prisons throughout the state. You know, it, it, it happens Absolutely. at Smithfield. It happens at Albion. It happens at Fayette. It happens at Mahanoy. But that, that is the engine you know, of this this movement here for sentencing reform to, to fight mass incarceration um, in, in so many ways. So the new structures of, the, of, of, of Phoenix and these kind of measures that they're taking um, to me are, you know, they're not just dangerous, but it's also, you know, this is, this is a, you know, an attack on people's political power and ability to organize themselves to, to fight for a change in society. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes to all of that. Um, yeah. Wow. Um, so, you know, let's uh, switch gears uh, here. And, you know, you mentioned earlier that the new prison costs $400 million. Um, yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's say I give you a magic wand. Um, what would you do with that $400 million? You know... <laughs> What would I do with that four hundred million dollars? <laughs> uh, it's 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 interesting. Um, it's an interesting question, and I think that I wouldn't want to be in charge of the four hundred million dollars. What I would want to do mm -hmm. is is I would I would want the for once um, just regular working class people in in Pennsylvania to actually have a say. On, on where this money goes and where it's important and where they need it in the community. Mm -hmm. I'd like the I'd like the poorest of those communities to really, really, you know, have priority in figuring out where that money needs to go. Ultimately, mm -hmm. I think my vision is it's it's really a vision of how do we put the people in charge of society and not these Absolutely. kind of wealthy elites or these, you know, political elites that are that make their career being these like social managers. And so I would really want to put that mm -hmm. question um to those that have least. But I would say 
one thing is that, you know, um, you know, I would I would like to see some resources, you know, go towards, you know, uh, I am an abolitionist, so I want to see us decarcerate and get people out of these these prisons um, as as quickly as we possibly can, you know. But as we're figuring out how to do that, um, I I want I want people's you know needs to be met, right? You know, there's people incarcerated mm-hmm. that have health conditions that aren't getting treated. Absolutely. You know, Norway. I was reading about Norway's you know system of incarceration. They have a maximum. Um, have you ever heard of Holden Prison? In, in Norway, it's, a maximum, so. it's their maximum security facility, um, and um, mm-hmm. um, at which I think the the maximum sentence is twenty five years. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, they well, have, I have heard about have, that. Yeah, the maximum. Yeah, sentence. they have like a law, a special detention law that allows them to hold people longer if they're deemed to be like you know an immediate threat to the community. But you know, it it puts kind of a burden on the state. To justify why they should hold people longer than I think 25 years, but you know the thing about mm-hmm. Norway and Holden Prison is they they spend like ninety thousand dollars per prisoner, um, which mm-hmm. you know goes into things like you know they have like kitchens, <laughs> like that, that mm-hmm. like small kitchens where they eat and share meals together in, you know they have a recording studio, they have you know these things and you know I don't don't get me wrong I, I don't want to make the I don't want to make the you know, I'm not trying to say, oh, let's make mass incarceration comfortable and then we can all feel better about it. Mm-hmm. But I guess what I mm-hmm, am saying mm-hmm. is that if we need, if, you know, you know, if we need to figure out in the long run, you know, where, you know, people who do serious harm and, you know, have to be temporarily separated from the community, we, we need to, we need to put those people in charge of reimagining what that social separation must look like. And it must be something mm-hmm. that is the opposite of prison something that radically humanizes people instead of dehumanizing them. You know, so yeah. I would like yeah, to I mean, see... Yeah, I mean, you can't... Yeah. Go ahead. I, I would like to see resources kind of going towards thinking about sort of a new justice paradigm, right, where mm-hmm. where people can imagine systems that are unlike prisons that um, that deal with actual, like, antisocial violent crime and and radically humanize people, right? Treat treat the person that's going through this rather than as a monster. It's someone who's going to be your neighbor in the future, you know, or somebody mm-hmm. who's part of the mm-hmm. community. And the goal is to not return them, you know, you know, traumatized, but to actually try to heal them and and you know, you know, help help them to to be a better human, you know. So yeah, I would like. Oh, to I mean, and it's just something that. Um, I think that uh, to your point about, you know, people that have done harm, um, it's really difficult to imagine that someone who has done harm to somebody in a community um, feels like they're part of that community, right? So separating yep. them from the community <laughs> and undermining and getting rid of, you know, the ties, as fragile as they may be, that already, you know, that are... Sure. Um, that exist for them uh, and, you know, separating them for, you know, however long uh, doesn't actually address, you know, the harm that's being done. Now we're harming someone else and calling that thing, you know, justice. So, you know, I take your point about, you know, bringing people in and saying, you know, you're part of this community too. Let's figure out, you know, let's address the conditions that led you to um, exactly harm someone. And, you know, while we also attend to the feelings of the people and the needs of the people that have been harmed, because in that model, you know, there's everybody's part of the community. Right. Everybody's right, a part of right. the community. And if we're if we're alienating people and we're finger wagging and we're moralizing and telling people again that they're bad people, that they have to go away, you know, we're not actually we're not doing anything, you know. And um right. yeah, I mean and I, I, I think well, I take your point as well about, you know, kinder, gentler mm-hmm. uh prisons. I you know, like you, I'm an abolitionist. You know, I think that's obvious to our listeners. Um and not, you know, having people um, 
you know, addressing people's immediate needs in prison because that needs to be addressed. Until we do away with the cages, people need to have health care. They need to have, you know, family visitation. It's nonsense of only having phone visitation is, you know, is destructive. It's dehumanizing. It's, you know, um, psychologically and emotionally, you know, um, terrorizing people and torturing people for really no good reason other than profit. Um, so we're going to have to upend the profit <laughs> uh, motive in this entire thing um, in order to address that. Right. But you had a you had I another think, point you wanted to make. Well, yeah, there's a, there's a few different few different things that I wanted to hit on. It's like you know I do I do think that for for the for the most part you know and this is you know what made mass incarceration so mass is a lot of the incarceration doesn't actually serve any social purpose. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, in some cases there was no actual harm committed, right? You know, this is you know, victimless crime, like, yep. you know, drug use or, you know, something like that. Um, or, you know, you could have, you know, other situations where, you know, um, you know, there was some, you know, some harm, you know, that was done. Somebody broke into somebody's house, uh, you know, but this is something that, like, could be dealt with you know, really easily at the level of the community. And we should be Absolutely. creating institutions to do just that. In fact, the Philly DA's office actually has some like restorative justice programs that they're going to be trying to house in like community organizations. And I think that they mm-hmm. will deal with a lot of those more low level kind of, you know, crimes um, that, that uh, well, you know, is kind of a form of diversion, because... you know. Mm-hmm. It's interesting then, you bring that up oh, because that's exactly what I had in mind when, you know, um, you, you were talking, not restorative justice, but transformative justice, because right, a lot exactly. of, you know, sure. one of the main critiques around restorative justice is that, you know, restoring to what? To whatever it was before, <laughs> and obviously was not working. But, you know, exactly, the other exactly. critiques that I have of, uh, of, you know, these programs being housed, I mean, I've seen, oh my goodness, um, restorative justice programs in police departments and police stations and that's not that's not the kind of (laughs) abolitionist thing that we don't want that shit at all at all and i you know i'm part of a I'm part of a transformative uh, justice circle, um, you know, that looks at this. And, you know, uh, a while back we were talking about accountability and what does accountability look like um, in the community and how do we, you know, how do we hold people accountable? But, you know, one of the points that came up was that people have to want to be held accountable. Um, And, you know, it's just... It's a really important and interesting yeah. model, um, a model. Uh, there are other models yeah. to address, you know, harm and deal with uh, accountability at the level of communities. And, you know, yeah. I want to push back a little bit against, uh, you know, the point that you made in terms of, you know, the DA's office or that these in, in, in terms of institutions, because I don't think that we need institutions to do this work. I think that we need to, the community needs to take over and do this work. We can do this work ourselves. We can train each other um, to, you know, facilitate transformative justice circles and figure out, you know, what do we do if someone is in crisis? What do we do if someone has just harmed someone? You know, what kind of responses do we want um, that don't include or rely on you know, the police or the DA's office. I mean, that's the top cop right. <laughs> in the city. So, right. you know, how do we move away so I think from I, that? Um, go ahead. So I, I think there's a, a few things, and, you know, that, that I wanted to touch on. And it, uh, let me, so so let me rewind back. Actually, I, I still had one thought on, you know, that I was kind of playing through with, like, when I was talking about, hey, there's some things that we can deal with at the community level very easily, mm-hmm. right? You know, and there's certain mm-hmm. things that mm-hmm. actually it's, it's a necessity that we we deal with them, right? There's a lot of mm-hmm. there are a lot of of crimes that, for very different reasons, they the, the criminal legal system discourages people from bringing up the fact that they were harmed. You know, I'll give you a concrete example. Yeah. Um, you know, so undocumented folks in Philly, 
um, and domestic Absolutely. violence, right? So Absolutely. when the consequence of calling the cops um, or filing a report against your husband is that your husband will get possibly caught up in the deportation machine, you know, you know mm-hmm. that just goes to kind of like all this stuff of like why, you know, why that the you know criminal legal system and you know the state as it, as it exists isn't a solution. It isn't really dealing with with harm. You know, I, I do think mm-hmm. that when we get to um, you know more serious types of violent harm, you know, there there is some you know, and I, I definitely don't want to say that it that it that it must be prison, but I think that you know some sort of interruption. Um, you know, mm-hmm. in the community, some sort of social separation that's temp- very much, very temporary, you know, like mm-hmm. must, must occur. So I think often even just to protect maybe the person that even did the harm and to stop the possibility of, of other violent retaliation, you know, but I think that, Absolutely. you know, I think that, that our, our imaginations have been so shackled by this prison state mm-hmm. that all we can think of yep. is, well, they got to go to prison. They got to go to prison. Yep. But when, when I have yep. conversations with people, I'm like, well, what, you know, what if we, what if we totally reimagine this from the ground up and, and, you know, you know, thought about, well, what do we need to do to make sure that, you know, like this person, you know, can come home, that they are a better person than when they left, that they don't harm anybody else, that the family that was harmed is made, you know, is, is, you know, supported and given all the resources that they need. It's a paradigm that looks really, really different, right? And it, Mobilize. You yep. know, I have friends that law, have lost people to violence, and they they never had the state come and say, "Hey, do you do you need therapy? Do you, do you need you know? Do you need do you need resources so you don't you can't so, so you can take some time off and not work? Do you know? Do you need yeah? You know what what yeah. do you need? You know they. Yeah. I, I have friends who whose whose people that kill their family members are on death row, and they don't even get notifications about what's happening with the person's case. You yeah. know, they have yeah. to find out Absolutely. in the news. They have to find out in the news. And I, so I think it's it's really reimagining from the ground up kind of what you're talking about, you know, in terms of Absolutely. like how do we get away from a criminal legal system and how do we get to a system of justice that's run by everyday people and that is run mm-hmm. by communities. And And so with that, I want to get to your point about institutions. And I think when I think about the institutions that we need, I'm not thinking about institutions mm-hmm. in terms of the state or things that are set up um, by elites without the input of people, but I think popular institutions, right? So the DA's office mm-hmm. is really, it's a very contested topic um, in, in, in really interesting ways because, you know, decarceral and anti mass incarceration movement elected the current DA, right? And it's a, mm-hmm. it's a very... Very interesting moment with Mr. Larry Krasner in there, and there are still movement mm-hmm. people that are, you know, lifers' moms, return juvenile lifers that are able to sit at a table with, with senior staff in the DA's office and talk about policy and stuff. And, you mm-hmm. know, I think that it's interesting that you brought that thing up of we don't want the restorative justice process housed in the DA's office, because that's exactly sort of the logic that, that some of the people that are involved in this restorative justice work in the DA's office are following, right? They're like, this shouldn't, yeah. it's not appropriate for it to be housed in the DA's office. It should be housed in the community. But instead of police stations, yeah. what they're looking for is like community organizations that are made up of youth or work with youth and that are independent, right? We're not talking about some sort yeah. of municipal thing where it's like the, you know, yeah. the rec center or something like that. They're talking about real, like, living, breathing, grassroots groups that already have the trust and respect in the community to, mm-hmm. to, to try to do something different, you know? And I mean, this is just the wild piece about what's happening in Philly right now. I don't want to oversell it. It's very uneven. There's really beautiful reforms that have happened in the DA's office since Krasner has gotten in. There's also been a lot of business as usual that, you know, has continued yeah. in tandem, you know, but I think that the, you know, the thing that's, that the need is, you know, the, you know, the person that's heading up this restorative justice thing is someone who is a lifelong activist who, you know, like, you know, would have never thought of, you know, going to work in a DA's office in, in her entire life, you know, but, you mm-hmm. know, in this moment she's, oh, maybe we could create some programs. But I think that ultimately, you know, 
you know, the question is kind of the way you put it, right? Because it is like, what, what are we doing that empowers regular people to be agents in their own lives and in running society, right? Versus yep. like, what are institutions going to do for everybody, right? That they'll just Absolutely. be some magic fix, you know? So, mm-hmm. you know, the more that we can use these, these moments, these temporary windows, like a Krasner DA where things are in play to create programs and practices that limit the ability of the state to punish, that put more power into the hands of communities to, to be running their own affairs rather than having their own affairs run for them, or much worse, to have the entire system just run them over, right? Which is basically what's happened Absolutely. in Philadelphia for the last the last mm-hmm. number of decades, you know. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think uh, I think I'm with you on that stuff. Yeah, no, I um, I'm really uh, glad to hear that there that these things are happening because it's mm-hmm. shifting the conversation from you know the thing that's always been done to something new. And for me, I think that's an important. Uh, an, an important turning point, right? So we're yeah. not quite at the abolition uh, point yet, Certainly, but yeah. we've already moved people to, you know, start thinking about different models uh, of justice and different models of, you know, accountability um, in in their Absolutely. communities and uh, amongst themselves. So um, I really, I want to thank you for this conversation. I really appreciated your time today. Um, I want to thank you incredible. so much for inviting me on. Yeah, yeah no, I, it's, I, 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 I thought about reaching out a number of times, and you know, it's like the the incentive was really there when you know you posted those things, and you know, it's like I'm a Philly girl through and through. I'm in LA yeah. right now, but you know, yeah, Philly's yeah. home. So um, yeah, I mean, it, it's just there's a lot of interesting stuff that's happening in Philly, and I'm glad, you know, happy to connect, and you know, I, I look forward to more conversations as these things evolve, and uh, would love to have you back on. Absolutely.